Welcome to the Ivy Arts and Culture Podcast, conversations with some of the most interesting and influential leaders in the visual and performing arts. Discover a new art form, unlock your creativity, or dive deeper into an existing passion. I'm Ivy's Arts and Culture Director and your host, Phil Chan. For more information about Ivy and our arts and culture programming, visit culture.ivy.com. One of a select group of museums solely dedicated to fashion, the museum at FIT is one of New York's hidden gems. Completely free to the public, the mission of the museum is to advance knowledge of fashion through exhibitions, programs, and publications. The museum's permanent collection encompasses some 50,000 garments and accessories from the 18th century to the present. Important designers such as Adrian, Balenciaga, Chanel, and Dior are represented. In addition to its three exhibition galleries, the museum is comprised of a conservation laboratory, photography studio, workshop, and more than 14,000 square feet of on-site storage space, classrooms, and offices for 30 full-time employees. Dr. Valerie Steele has been the director of the museum at FIT since 2003 and chief curator since 1997. How does she balance building an exhibition with building a curriculum? I work with a group of really talented curators. So when I first came here, I was doing myself five shows a year. But now I only do a show every year and a half or so because other curators send in their proposals for things that they want to do. And what we're looking for are exhibitions that will educate and inspire people and also that will advance knowledge of fashion. So they have to be based on real research. And they also have to be something that we can put together either based on our own collection or on things that we can borrow or acquire. And I try and get a range of different kinds of shows so that it won't be four 19th century shows in a row, but rather we'll have some contemporary, some historical, things like that. Finding the pieces is one of the exciting parts of the research. So, for example, when I did the show on dance and fashion, I did a lot of research about the history of costume and dance and its relationship to fashion, and then which fashion designers had been working doing dance costumes for which companies. And then it became a question of trying to figure out which ones could I find out the costumes still exist? Where were they? Could I borrow them? Things like that. So a lot of reaching out to a different institutions and individuals to try and get some of the clothes that I wanted. Figuring out how best to use the space within the museum also presents its own challenges. We have three different galleries here. So one, the special exhibitions are the really big shows like dance and fashion. Then there's the fashion history gallery. And that one fits in very more closely perhaps with what the curriculum is because that covers usually at least a hundred years, if not 200 years of fashion, so that there'll be a theme. It might be seduction or it might be black fashion designers, but it will trace a history. And so the professors can use that if they want to show earlier periods to their students. And then there's the third gallery, Gallery FIT, which is for student work. And that includes working with graduate students um, here at FIT to put together a real fashion history show. So right now we have Adrian, and they use Adrian dresses from our collection, but they come up with the whole thesis of the show. Dr. Steele is also the founder and editor-in-chief of Fashion Theory, the Journal of Dress, Body, and Culture, the first peer-reviewed scholarly journal in fashion studies. Well, Fashion Theory was the first scholarly fashion journal founded anywhere in the world. And um, it 
It's not connected with an association like Costume Society. It's international, interdisciplinary. It's founded in 1997. And to be a peer-reviewed journal means that if you submit an article, I send it out to at least one, if not two, scholars in that field who will assess, is it original? Is the research good? Is it saying anything that's new and important? Is it full of mistakes? So only about a third of the articles submitted are ever actually published, and most of those have gone through revisions as well, thanks to peer review process, where the reviewers will say, well, but you haven't looked at what this scholar's written, or, you know, you seem to be making a mistake about this aspect of it. So it's a chance to really push scholarship forward. And it was actually been so successful that there are now several other scholarly peer-reviewed fashion journals. Fashion, like any other art form, is constantly changing and evolving with the times. As the rising millennial generation grows into the target consumers of the fashion industry, how have their tastes influenced the business of fashion? Well, I think it began even before this generation. I think you see the real division in the late 60s, early 70s, when a lot of young people started saying, I'm not interested in being told what to wear. I want to figure out what's right for me to wear. And you notice the impact in fashion journalism, because instead of saying, you know, banish the black, think pink, the way they did in the 50s, instead they'll go, well, this is a trend that's going on if you're interested in it. But if you don't like it, that's fine. There are many other things going on. Or here's five on. ways to wear pink exactly. if you choose to. If you choose to. The technology of this generation has also had a profound impact on fashion as well. But to what degree has it changed the fashion industry? How has it not changed it? I mean, technology's changed it since the 18th century when you started to have mechanization of materials with machine looms, for example, and then with the sewing machine. And now, of course, you have all kinds of uh, computer-assisted design programs. So you're not just sketching with the pencil and then drawing the paper patterns on a table. You're doing the designs on the computer. You're having laser cutting of the patterns, etc. Um, the other big thing that technology has done is through the internet so that you see the fashions instantly online. And then they're copied by fast fashion companies instantly. I mean, copies have been made for years, but now you're seeing the fashions right away and they're often produced by fast fashion companies before their designers themselves are able to produce the clothes. And you can buy the clothes online. So that in and of itself, online shopping has had a huge impact. Just the fact that you're looking at a lot of fashion images on your cell phone uh, through Instagram means that things like patterns and color are being featured more because it shows up better on the screen than a black outfit does. So in all of these ways, technology is influencing what we wear and how we get, how we acquire our clothes and how we get news about clothes. The independent designer is being increasingly crushed between either the big luxury companies, the LVMHs, or the big fast fashion companies like H&M. And there's very little room for maneuvering for an independent designer. Um, in terms of the consumer, most consumers want to have clothes that are in some way trendy, but they don't want to pay a lot of money for it. So they're mostly voting towards fast fashion. And yet a number of people are getting worried because fast fashion has so many costs in terms of labor exploitation. If your t-shirt costs $10, is it being made by some, you know, 12-year-old in Cambodia who's getting paid $60 a month? Um, is it being made by 
devastating hardwood forests and then sort of polluting the environment. So I think that sustainability is becoming gradually more of an issue for people, but very gradually. It's like we realized with fast food that it was really bad for you, you know, like fast food nation, you're eating it and your health is going down the toilet. But with clothes, it's not really your health. You're not being poisoned by your t-shirt, but the world is being poisoned by your cheap t-shirt. So what are the alternatives? It's really tricky because there are very few organizations that are monitoring it. So you can't find a tag on your T-shirt that would say, this has been made in a way with workers who've been paid enough that hasn't hurt the environment. You can certainly tell if it costs less than it se- than seems normal, it's not going to be made in a very healthy way. A handful of companies and designers are making a real effort. So, you know, if you're looking at clothes by Patagonia or by Stella McCartney, they're making a big effort to make it in a sustainable way. But most are not. So you're sort of reduced to trying to do research online, just as people are starting to look online uh, before they eat a fish in a restaurant and go, is this endangered? (laughs) You know? While artists and other disciplines are beginning to forecast the impact the current American political climate will have on the arts, Dr. Steele is less convinced that politics will impact the fashion industry too drastically. Well, I think most of us assume that fashion uh, is very strongly affected by politics. But if you look at the long arc of history, that's actually seldom true, at least in a direct way. Certainly usually not in democracies where there's a choice of what to wear. When you really see A direct impact is when you have an authoritarian government or a a really dictatorship kind of situation where, for example, in, in China during the Cultural Revolution, when people were actually afraid to wear fashionable or old fashioned clothes for fear of being attacked on the street. Um, and even then it wasn't specifically that the government issued a directive that said, you can't wear blue jeans, you can't wear cheap house. Instead, you, people were sort of policing each other. And if you were wearing tight pants or bourgeois clothes or traditional Chinese clothes, people might literally take scissors and rip the clothes off your body. So ironically, then people became very attuned to what was politically acceptable under those circumstances and decided that the safest thing was pretty much to wear what we call a Mao suit, you know, just a uniform. Um, But except for that kind of circumstance, Usually politics doesn't have a direct impact um, unless, for example, a war actually invades your country and you can't get access to materials. I mean, when the Nazis occupied Paris, for example, the Germans seized all the leather and fur for themselves. And so then you couldn't find leather to make shoes, then you had to wear wooden shoes. Or if you couldn't get you know, regular fur, you might wear cat fur or squirrel fur. You, In other words, you had to make do because you couldn't have the materials that you normally would in fashion. But even then, people were trying to create looks. You know, for example, if they didn't have good material, but they might have little scraps, they'd make fancy, weird, funny little hats that then could be made out of almost anything, cellophane, paper, wood chips, that uh, could give a sense of, personality and style, even in the absence of real materials. With a background in hundreds of years of fashion history, what advice does Dr. Steele have for developing one's own personal style? Fashion is one of the most personal forms of self-expression. And so some people do feel quite anxious about what their clothes might be saying about them. 
Um, there's more information now about fashion than ever before, so you're more likely to feel inundated with too much information. You can go online and see every fashion show practically as it's appearing. But I think that for most people, it's what's le less important is what's being shown on the runways or featured in Vogue than what's being worn by your colleagues and friends. Most of what people do when they're putting together a wardrobe is to see what their friends are wearing or what their associates are wearing, and then trying to figure out to what extent that fits with their image of themselves. Mm -hmm. um, so it, trends are actually less important nowadays than a sense of, are these clothes something that is relevant to you and your identity? So that's kind of the thing that you look at. What's your body like? What's your lifestyle like? What kind of image do you want to present of yourself? And those are really the kind of things that you look at as you try and put together an ensemble. Because it's no longer the kind of clear rules that there were even 15 or 20 years ago. Um, the suit sort of went out in a lot of business communities with the whole rise of Silicon Valley. And suddenly people were looking at highly successful people who are wearing, you know, t-shirts and sneakers. So it might well be that sneakers are completely appropriate. I mean, I think there are many young people who've never worn leather shoes. They're just wearing sneakers. But you want to see, is that what's appropriate for your area? And suits have mostly gone out. Neckties have mostly gone out. But do you want to wear a jacket? I think that you need to make a distinction between a sort of casual work environment. Casual doesn't mean you wear what you're wearing to clean out your garage. If your wardrobe needs some further inspiration, the museum at FIT has a great range of exhibitions coming up. We do four big fashion shows a year, which will be a force of nature, which is how artists have been inspired by nature, which is going to be very exciting. Looking not only at, you know, flowers and birds, but also at, um, like with birds, peacocks and sexual selection. How come males used to be in the animal and are in the animal kingdom so elaborately beautiful and females are more humble and camouflaged? And how has it happened that women are the ones who are the peacocks in the human fashion world? We'll do a big show called Expedition, Fashion from the Extremes, which will look at how explorers of uh, the polar regions, of outer space, of deserts, how they're clothes which were made to survive have influenced fashion, like with fabulous parkas, you know, that the Inuit were the ones who invented real parkas. And then later in the fall, we're going to have another one which will be on um, fashion and different body types and how fashion always seems to be made for those size zero people. And what about if you're a full-figured person? What about if you have a disability? What about if your body is not the ideal for that period? And then how do you find fashion? And what's the fashion world doing about trying to be more open to different body types? Thanks for listening to the Ivy Arts and Culture podcast. For more information about Ivy and our over 400 cultural programs nationwide, visit culture.ivy.com. We are pleased to be able to include the New York Philharmonic's recording of Igor Stravinsky's Petrushka as part of our podcast. For more information about the New York Philharmonic, please visit them on the web at nyphil.org.